Part the Third, Chapter Eight of Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Jude wondered if she really had left her handkerchief behind, or whether it were that she had miserably wished to tell him of a love that at the last moment she could not bring herself to express. He could not stay in his silent lodging when they were gone, and fearing that he might be tempted to drown his misery in alcohol, he went upstairs, changed his dark clothes for his white his tin boots for his thick, and proceeded to his customary work for the afternoon. But in the cathedral he seemed to hear a voice behind him, and to be possessed with an idea that she would come back. She could not possibly go home with Phillotson, he fancied. The feeling grew and stirred. The moment that the clock struck the last of his working hours he threw down his tools and rushed homeward. "'Has anybody been for me?' he asked. "'Nobody had been there.' As he could claim the downstairs sitting-room till twelve o'clock that night, he sat in it all the evening, and even when the clock had struck eleven and the family had retired he could not shake off the feeling that she would come back and sleep in the little room adjoining his own in which she had slept so many previous days. Her actions were always unpredictable. Why should she not come? Gladly would he have compounded for the denial of her as a sweetheart and wife by having her live thus as a fellow lodger and friend even on the most distant terms. His supper still remained spread, and going to the front door and softly setting it open, he returned to the room and sat as watchers sit on old midsummer eves, expecting the phantom of the beloved. But she did not come. Having indulged in this wild hope he went upstairs and looked out of the window, and pictured her through the evening journey to London whither she and Phillotson had gone for their holiday, their rattling along through the damp night to their hotel under the same sky of ribbed cloud as that he beheld, through which the moon showed its position rather than its shape, and one or two of the larger stars made themselves visible as faint nebulae only. It was a new beginning of Sue's history. He projected his mind into the future and saw her with children more or less in her own likeness around her, but the consolation of regarding them as a continuation of her identity was denied to him, as to all such dreamers by the wilfulness of nature in not allowing issue from one parent alone. Every desired renewal of an existence is debased by being half alloy. If at the estrangement or death of my lost love I could go and see her child, hers solely, there would be comfort in it," said Jude. And then he again uneasily saw, as he had latterly seen with more and more frequency, the scorn of nature for man's finer emotions, and her lack of interest for his aspirations. The oppressive strength of his affection for Sue showed itself on the morrow and following days yet more clearly. He could no longer endure the light of the Melchester lamps. The sunshine was as drab paint and the blue sky as zinc. Then he received news that his old aunt was dangerously ill at Marygreen, which intelligence almost coincided with a letter from his former employer at Christminster, who offered him permanent work of a good class if he would come back. The letters were almost a relief to him. He started to visit Aunt Drusilla and resolved to go onward to Christminster to see what worth there might be in the builder's offer. Jude found his aunt even worse than the communication from the widow Edlin had led him to expect. There was every possibility of her lingering on for weeks or months, though little likelihood. He wrote to Sue informing her of the state of her aunt and suggesting that she might like to see her aged relative alive. 
He would meet her at Alfredston Road the following evening, Monday, on his way back from Christminster, if she could come by the up-train which crossed his down-train at the station. Next morning, according, he went on to Christminster, intending to return to Alfredston soon enough to keep the suggested appointment with Sue. The city of learning wore an estranged look, and he had lost all feeling for its associations. Yet, as the sun made vivid lights and shades of the mullioned architecture of the façades, and drew patterns of the crinkled battlements on the young turf of the quadrangles, Jude thought he had never seen the place look more beautiful. He came to the street in which he had first beheld Sue. The chair she had occupied when, leaning over her ecclesiastical scrolls, a hog-hair brush in her hand, her girlish figure had arrested the gaze of his inquiring eyes, stood precisely in its former spot empty. It was as if she were dead and nobody had been found capable of succeeding her in that artistic pursuit. Hers was now the city phantom, while those of the intellectual and devotional worthies who had once moved him to emotion were no longer able to assert their presence there. However, here he was, and in fulfilment of his intention he went on to his former lodging in Beersheba, near the ritualistic church of St. Silas. The old landlady who opened the door seemed glad to see him again, and bringing some lunch informed him that the builder who had employed him had called to inquire his address. Jude went on to the stone-yard where he had worked, but the old sheds and bankers were distasteful to him. He felt it impossible to engage himself to return and stay in this place of vanished dreams. He longed for the hour of the homeward train to Alfredston, where he might probably meet Sue. Then. For one ghastly half-hour of depression caused by these scenes there returned upon him that feeling which had been his undoing more than once, that he was not worth the trouble of being taken care of either by himself or others. And during this half-hour he met Tinker Taylor, the bankrupt ecclesiastical ironmonger at Four Ways, who proposed that they should adjourn to a bar and drink together. They walked along the street till they stood before one of the great palpitating centres of Christminster life the inn wherein he had formerly responded to the challenge, to rehearse the creed in Latin, now a popular tavern with a spacious and inviting entrance, which gave admittance to a bar that had been entirely renovated and refitted in modern style since Jude's residence here. Tinker Taylor drank off his glass and departed, saying it was too stylish a place now for him to feel at home in, unless he was drunker than he had money to be just then. Jude was longer finishing his and stood abstractedly silent in the, for the minute, almost empty place. The bar had been gutted and newly arranged throughout, mahogany fixtures having taken the place of the old painted ones, while at the back of the standing place there were stuffed sofa benches. The room was divided into compartments in the approved manner, between which were screens of ground glass in mahogany framing, to prevent topers in one compartment being put to the blush by the recognitions of those in the next. On the inside of the counter two barmaids leant over the white-handled beer-engines and the row of little silvered taps inside, dripping into a pewter trough. Feeling tired and having nothing more to do till the train left, Jude sat down on one of the sofas. At the back of the barmaids rose beveled-edged mirrors, with glass shelves running along their front on which stood precious liquids that Jude did not know the name of, in bottles of topaz, sapphire, ruby, and amethyst. 
The moment was enlivened by the entrance of some customers into the next compartment, and the starting of the mechanical tell-tale of monies received, which emitted a ting-ting every time a coin was put in. The barmaid attending to this compartment was invisible to Jude's direct glance, though a reflection of her back in the glass behind her was occasionally caught by his eyes. He had only observed this listlessly when she turned her face for a moment to the glass to set her hair tidy. Then he was amazed to discover that the face was Arabella's. If she had come on to his compartment she would have seen him, but she did not, this being presided over by the maiden on the other side. Abby was in a black gown with white linen cuffs and a broad white collar, and her figure, more developed than formerly, was accentuated by a bunch of daffodils that she wore on her left bosom. In the compartment that she served stood an electroplated fountain of water over a spirit lamp, whose blue flame set the steam from the top, all this being visible to him only in the mirror behind her, which also reflected the faces of the men she was attending to, one of them a handsome, dissipated young fellow, possibly an undergraduate, who had been relating to her an experience of some humorous sort. "'Oh, Mr. Cockman, now! How can you tell such a tale to me in my innocence?' she cried gaily. "'Mr. Cockman, what do you use to make your moustache curl so beautiful?' As the young man was clean-shaven the retort provoked a laugh at his expense. "'Come,' said he, "'I'll have a curaçao and a light, please.' She served the liqueur from one of the lovely bottles, and striking a match held it to his cigarette with ministering archness, while he whiffed. "'Well, have you heard from your husband lately, my dear?' he asked. "'Not a sound,' said she. "'Where is he?' "'I left him in Australia, and I suppose he's there still.' Jude's eyes grew rounder. "'What made you part from him? Don't you ask questions, and you won't hear lies.' "'Come, then, give me my chains, which you've been keeping from me for the last quarter of an hour, and I'll romantically vanish up the street of this picturesque city.' She handed the change over the counter in taking which he caught her fingers and held them. There was a slight struggle and titter, and he bade her good-bye and left. Jude had looked on with the eye of a dazed philosopher. It was extraordinary how far removed from his life Arabella now seemed to be. He could not realise their nominal closeness, and this being the case, in his present frame of mind he was indifferent to the fact that Arabella was his wife indeed. The compartment that she served emptied itself of visitors, and after a brief thought he entered it and went forward to the counter. Arabella did not recognize him for a moment. Then their glances met. She started till a humorous impudence sparkled in her eyes and she spoke. "'Well, I'm blessed! I thought you were underground years ago.' "'Oh? I never heard anything of you, or I don't know that I should have come here. But never mind. What shall I treat you to this afternoon? A scotch and soda? Come, anything that the house will afford for old acquaintance' sake." "'Thanks, Arabella,' said Jude, without a smile. But I don't want anything more than I've had." The fact was that her unexpected presence there had destroyed at a stroke his momentary taste for strong liquor, as completely as if it had whisked him back to his milk-fed infancy. "'That's a pity. Now you could get it for nothing. How long have you been here? About six weeks. I returned from Sydney three months ago. I always like this business, you know. I wonder you came to this place. Well, as I say, I thought you were gone to glory, 
and being in London I saw the situation in an advertisement. Nobody was likely to know me here, even if I had minded, for I was never in Christminster in my growing up. Why did you return from Australia? Oh, I had my reasons. Then you are not a don yet? No. Not even a reverend? No. Nor so much as a rather reverend dissenting gentleman? I am as I was. True, you look so. She idly allowed her fingers to rest on the pull of the beer engine as she inspected him critically. He observed that her hands were smaller and whiter than when he had lived with her, and that on the hand which pulled the engine she wore an ornamental ring set with what seemed to be real sapphires, which they were indeed, and were much admired as such by the young men who frequented the bar. So, you pass as having a living husband, he continued. Yes, I thought it might be awkward if I called myself a widow, as I should have liked. True, I am known here a little. I didn't mean on that account, for, as I said, I didn't expect you. It was for other reasons. What were they? I don't care to go into them, she replied evasively. I make a very good living, and I don't know that I want your company. Here a chappie with no chin and a moustache like a lady's eyebrow came and asked for a curiously compounded drink, and Arabella was obliged to go and attend to him. "'We can't talk here,' she said, stepping back a moment. "'Can't you wait till nine? Say yes and don't be a fool. I can get off duty two hours sooner than usual if I ask. I am not living in the house at present.' He reflected and said gloomily, "'I'll come back. I suppose we'd better arrange something.' Oh, bother arranging. I'm not going to arrange anything. But I must know a thing or two, and, as you say, we can't talk here. Very well, I'll call for you. Depositing his unemptied glass, he went out and walked up and down the street. Here was a rude flounce into the pellucid sentimentality of his sad attachment to Sue. Though Arabella's word was absolutely untrustworthy, he thought there might be some truth in her implication that she had not wished to disturb him and had really supposed him dead. However, there was only one thing now to be done, and that was to play a straightforward part, the law being the law, and the woman between whom and himself there was no more unity than between East and West, being, in the eye of the church, one person with him. Having to meet Arabella here, it was impossible to meet Sue at Alfredston as he had promised. At every thought of this a pang had gone through him, but the conjuncture could not be helped. Arabella was, perhaps, an intended intervention to punish him for his unauthorized love. Passing the evening, therefore, in a desultory waiting about the town wherein he avoided the precincts of every cloister and hall, because he could not bear to behold them, he repaired to the tavern bar while the hundred and one strokes were resounding from the great bell of Cardinal College, a coincidence which seemed to him gratuitous irony. The inn was now brilliantly lighted up and the scene was altogether more brisk and gay. The faces of the barmaidens had risen in colour, each having a pink flush on her cheek. Their manners were still more vivacious than before, more abandoned, more excited, more sensuous, and they expressed their sentiments and desires less euphemistically, laughing in a lackadaisical tone without reserve. The bar had been crowded with men of all sorts during the previous hour, and he had heard from without the hubbub of their voices but the customers were fewer at last. He nodded to Arabella and told her that she would find him outside the door when she came away. "'But you must have something with me first, she said with great good humour. "'Just an early nightcap. I always do. 
Then you can go out and wait a minute, as it is best we should not be seen going together. She drew a couple of liqueur glasses of brandy, and though she had evidently from her countenance already taken in enough alcohol, either by drinking or, more probably, from the atmosphere she had breathed for so many hours, she finished hers quickly. He also drank his, and went outside the house. In a few minutes she came, in a thick jacket and a hat with a black feather. "'I live quite near,' she said, taking his arm, "'and can let myself in by a latch-key at any time. What arrangement do you want to come to?' "'Oh, none in particular,' he answered, thoroughly sick and tired, his thoughts again reverting to Alfredston and the train he did not go by, the probable disappointment of Sue that he was not there when she arrived, and the missed pleasure of her company on the long and lonely climb by starlight up the hills to Mary Green. "'I ought to have gone back, really. My aunt is on her deathbed, I fear. I'll go over with you tomorrow morning. I think I could get a day off.' There was something particularly uncongenial in the idea of Arabella, who had no more sympathy than a tigress with his relations or him, coming to the bedside of his dying aunt and meeting Sue. Yet he said, "'Of course. If you would like to, you can.' Well. That we'll consider. Now, until we have come to some agreement, it is awkward our being together here where you are known and I am getting known, though without any suspicion that I have anything to do with you. As we are going towards the station, suppose we take the 9.40 train to Albrickham. We should be there in a little more than half an hour, and nobody will know us for one night, and we should be quite free to act as we choose till we have made up our minds whether we'll make anything public or not. As you like. Then wait till I get two or three things. This is my lodging. Sometimes when late I sleep in the hotel where I am engaged, so nobody will think anything of my staying out." She speedily returned, and they went on to the railway and made the half-hour's journey to Aldbrickham, where they entered a third-rate inn near the station in time for a late supper. End of chapter 8